It's Tuesday, March 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. One of the biggest debates of the pandemic was how to proceed with school as the virus disrupted everything. Everything from learning remotely or in person to wearing masks was a point of contention. But at the Lewis Palmer School District in Colorado, they chose to keep kids in class and made masks optional. What resulted were students who flourished and boosted some of their test scores while other districts in the state lagged behind. Perry Stein, education reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how this district tried to proceed as normal. Next, for many people that have experienced long COVID, they've had to deal with not only prolonged symptoms, but the hassle of trying to fight for disability benefits. We still understand very little about long COVID and how severe the effects are can be difficult to measure. Insurers demand that there be evidence that a person cannot work, and some medical tests may not clearly show an impairment, leading to denials of benefits. Christopher Rowland, business of health reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for the fight for disability payments. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. A lot of their plans and services, such as speech therapy, some kids' occupational therapy, one-on-one, just couldn't be delivered as effectively online. Um, Lewis Palmer did bring back um, even their high school special education, their most... um, the kids with the highest needs in high school, they brought them back five days a week by November or in November. Joining us now is Perry Stein, education reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Perry. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we all saw a lot of different effects going on because of the pandemic on schools. I mean, it was just a huge disruptor, uh, closings and then openings and then arguments about mask wearing. It really played out (laughs) very loudly across the country. And, you know, on on one hand, we had parents and teachers, teachers unions saying we need to have uh, kids remote learning for fear of the virus spreading. We need masks if we're going to do in-person learning. And on the other side, we had a lot of parents say, you know, we need our kids in school because they're languishing at home or, you know, we don't want them to wear masks because it's just kind of unnatural. They need, they need to be free and kids are spared some of the worst effects of the virus. So there was all these conversations going on. But mm-hmm. you wrote an article looking at the Lewis Palmer School District in Colorado, which kind of went the other way. I mean, they said we're going to still do in person learning and not do the whole remote learning thing. They really didn't do too much to contain the actual virus. And their students did really well. Uh, we saw their uh, a lot of their, their school rates go up when a lot of the other rates in, the, in Colorado were going down. So there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, so Perry, tell us what the Lewis Palmer District did. Definitely. And yeah, I just as you said, I spent a lot of my pandemic covering school districts that really didn't reopen last year. So I set out to find one that did reopen. And so I landed on Lewis Palmer, which is right outside of Colorado Springs. And they opened in the fall of 2020 with all elementary school students in person full time. I should say all elementary students who wanted to go. Families could still do virtual, but the overwhelming opted to go in person five days a week. They decided, they based this off a study that showed at the time that kids 10 and under didn't spread the virus as much. So they decided to go maskless, um, to make masks optional at the elementary school level in classrooms. Um, And, you know, it was at the time, Lewis Palmer, or the county that Lewis Palmer is located in, they didn't have a, they, they were below national averages on um, COVID rates. It's a pretty wealthy school district, so a lot of parents working from home. 
and it's pretty um you know it's it's a sprawling neighborhood it's not like city there's like if there's like one or two apartment buildings that i saw that you know served and those were small buildings that served the school district so you know people weren't living on top of each other it, yeah and they went to reopen schools and parents and teachers felt comfortable with this and they did it yeah, and you know, we saw the negative effects that happened play out because of some of the closures. Obviously, a lot of kids found it really difficult to learn at home. It just wasn't their regular thing. Uh, we saw a lot of them have mental health issues. That emotional maturity, just from not being around peers and kind of learning how things go. We heard of a lot of fights breaking out as soon as kids started going back to school. Yeah. You know, so we see, we've seen all these negative effects. But here in this school district, thankfully, a lot of that stuff didn't happen. Tell me about some of the test scores that we saw, because this is where I think in reading, a lot of the students had an uptick, maybe in math, not so much, but they were having great scores compared to the overall state numbers. Yeah, I think that's true. And I want to be clear. I mean, the kids here and the school leaders will still tell you that in Lewis Palmer, they did endure a pandemic, right? And that's really stressful, the uncertainty. They had quarantines, routines were broken. I'm sure parents had anxiety, some of theirs that, you know, kids can feel and understand. So they do still, you know, they are still seeing some mental health concerns. They are still having what they're what I would refer to as pandemic induced challenges that they are needing to address. So they weren't spared the pandemic. But yeah, I mean I think you see the results coming out of there are better. I mean no one argued that virtual learning for the vast majority of kids is better than in person learning. So they benefited from getting a whole lot more of in person learning. So at the elementary school level you did see big gains in reading um, that outpaced um um, math everywhere around the country, from what I have seen, that was really hard to do online. Um, you know, you would see uh, some drops there, but not as big as um, the state's drops. And something interesting that I saw improvements among some of the special education kids that those were the kids that I think largely have been, you know, vulnerable kids that have been um, set back the most from the pandemic because, you know, a lot of their plans and services, such as speech therapy, some kids, occupational therapy, one-on-one, just couldn't be delivered as effectively online. Um, Lewis Palmer did bring back um, even their high school special education, their most, um, the kids with the highest needs in high school, they brought them back five days a week by November or in November. So, um, so those were some of the hopeful things. They still had challenges. I mean, there is a big achievement gap in Lewis. There is an achievement gap in Lewis Palmer between um, between white students and students of color, and that did not um, improve during the pandemic. This figures right into the conversation, as I mentioned earlier. Right, there was this kind of fight on both sides. You know, who would be right? And a lot of this, when you look at Lewis Palmer, you know, a lot of people say, well, they got lucky that there were no huge outbreaks. And I think uh, you mentioned the article, like, you know, overall, like two people went to the hospital and and none of them were students, you know, so Mm -hmm. a lot of people say, hey, they got really lucky. Others say, you know, they did it right. They followed health guidance. They kept the schools open. They listened to parents and whatnot. A question I have is, you know, how did the teachers feel throughout all of this? Because that was one of the big conversations going around where teachers, teachers unions were saying, well, Kids could be spared the, the, the worst of the virus, but the adults, the instructors aren't. Uh, so that was a big conversation. How did teachers feel yeah, in this district? You know, it was interesting. Um, I came, I, I covered a lot of the teacher union sites, I could, you know, and 
a lot of the teachers unions, I will say, were responding to what they felt their communities wanted, that parents wanted. And you see in cities like D.C. where I live, parents didn't want to go back. So it wasn't that the unions differed so vastly from, you know, every parent here. But here, you know, I was surprised. I, I tried to talk to as many teachers as I could to really, you know, ensure I understood their viewpoint. And most of the ones, everyone I talked to, and I didn't talk to all the teachers, obviously, felt comfortable going back. They felt that they they saw their kids fall behind that spring when it was virtual learning, and they felt they needed to go back, and they felt that it could be done safely. You know, some there was some teachers, you know, as they, the school district admitted that there were teachers that felt that, this, that they didn't want to go back unless there were some teachers, though, that felt that the school took too many precautions. Some teachers that didn't want to teach with masks, at least one. So he left the school system. So they ran the gamut, but the vast majority, I mean, they did a survey in July of 2020. That was pretty early on in the pandemic. And the majority of teachers felt that school could be reopened safely. Teachers, the teachers that I talked to, most of them did wear masks throughout last year and wanted to wear masks. I mean, I think they had to for most of but they wanted to wear masks and still wore masks for Omicron this year. So I think the teachers were fairly on board. You know, in the end, uh, obviously, every situation is different. uh, And luckily for this school district, it, it worked out well. Their students were thriving. Mm-hmm. But they did have a lot of disruptions, obviously. There weren't times where they were just completely open because this happened in fall of 2020. So this is when mm-hmm. all school districts were going crazy, hybrid this, full remote learning. They decided to get classes going very early on in the pandemic still when we were there. you know. So they did have disruptions when case accounts were really going up. They had to close and do remote learning. But overall, even talking to a lot of the students, it, it, you know, they felt like it was kind of a normal year in that you know, probably lends itself to the argument of why they were doing so good, at least with their scores and whatnot. Yeah, it's interesting. I tried to talk to as many students as possible. And it's like, you know, you were asking about something for a kid that was very normal for them. So, yeah, I think they they felt that at least the younger kids felt that it, it worked out pretty, pretty well for them, that, you know, some of them thought that the school, because they were quarantined so much, and again, their kids are not following what's happening in every other district, um, right? They only know their own. Right. Is that uh, felt that they took too many precautions because they got quarantined too much at the older grades. I mean, I some kids didn't get quarantined at all. Some kids got quarantined multiple times. Um, that put them back into virtual learning. But yeah, by and large, I mean, again, this is just a look at one school district. I don't yeah. think that everything that they did could be replicated in every other school district or should have been. But I do think, you know, at where we are in the pandemic, it's important to look at all different types of school districts and what types of decisions they made and how they made them and how they fared. Totally. And that's the interesting part. We're going to be unpacking what happened throughout the pandemic for years. And we're going to look back to see what really worked, what didn't work. And, you know, hopefully we can carry that into the future. But this massive disruption that we're going to have to study this for some time and see where what we did right and what we did wrong. Perry Stein, education reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Cognitive tests do not always show any significant decline in brain function, even though people feel confused and exhausted. You can't measure exhaustion uh, with a medical test. So when they apply for disability, 
uh, you know, these reviewers are looking at this stuff and they're saying, well, these are all really subjective symptoms. Denied. Joining us now is Christopher Rowland, Business of Health Reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Oh, happy to be here. Well, let's talk about an interesting angle to what's going on here during the pandemic. Obviously, we got a lot of people that uh, experience their COVID infection in different ways. One of the more mysterious ones and and infections that have you know this wider ranging uh, effect on people is uh, those that are the COVID long haulers. So those that get long COVID and, you know, it's a range of symptoms, the brain fog, being extremely tired all the time, just not being able to operate completely normal. And a lot of these people are, you know, trying to get uh, disability payments out of this, Uh, you know, maybe file for short-term disability, long-term disability in some cases. And what they're finding is a really big battle with the private insurance companies or the Social Security Administration so, Chris, tell us a little bit more about what these long haulers are facing. So we're talking about a category of long haulers. So there's a lot of people do get long COVID. It can last for a number of weeks or, uh, you know, a couple of months or even more. And then there's a category that where it lasts for quite a prolonged period, uh, you know, three, six months, nine months. And even some people now who've been sick for two years um, and, you know, they have this terrible fatigue and essentially they can't work. There's probably around, you know, the estimates are there's maybe around a million people like this who have severe long COVID, who've been sick for a long time, and it's so debilitating that they can't function at their jobs anymore. They can't even barely compose an email. You know, they can barely walk around their house, uh, go up the stairs without becoming extremely fatigued and have, you know, rapid heart rate and all kinds of serious pain and different problems. Um, But the problem with long COVID is that there is not any kind of great test, uh, medical test to show uh, what exactly is going on with your body. So, you know, EKGs for these folks come back clean and normal. Um, uh, Cognitive tests do not always show any significant decline in brain function, even though people feel confused and exhausted. You can't measure exhaustion uh, with a medical test. So when they apply for disability, uh, you know, these reviewers are looking at this stuff and they're saying, well, these are all really subjective symptoms denied. A lot of these people even have notes from their doctors, obviously saying it would be wise that the person takes time off, et cetera. But what a lot of people were saying that, you know, these disability evaluations are based on function, not the diagnosis. So you can have the diagnosis, you can have the letter from your doctor. If the tests aren't bearing it out, they're more likely to just reject people. Yeah, and so a lot of this is the medical system trying to catch up, right? Like, so, it, it, you know, there wasn't even a diagnosis code for, you know, that you could enter into computer saying this person has long COVID. You know, that wasn't even around for a year after the pandemic began. Uh, but you're right. So even if you get diagnosed and your your physician says, okay, this person has long COVID, you know, um, there's a whole other step that needs to take place. Uh, the physician needs to attest that, you're so sick that you can't actually work. Um, you know, so for someone who has a physical job out outdoors, who has to climb ladders and is a roofer or something like that, or a painter, or, you know, has a lot or a lot of physical activity outside, you know, they might have a better shot, but for a lot of office workers, uh, you know, white collar workers, um, I've talked to people who are white collar workers who, you know, used to run marathons. I've talked to doctors who ran marathons and they got long COVID, and, you know, they were debilitated. It took them a long time to get back to work. Sure. So it's, uh, you know, a variety of symptoms and um, it's, it's hard to pin down. Yeah. 
share a few of the stories that you of people that you did speak to because there were a few that uh, you mentioned in the article through the help of a lawyer they were able to secure some disability uh, benefits others just flat out they just kept getting denied and going back and forth through appeals process and continually getting denied yeah so i you know uh, i talked to a woman um in pennsylvania for example who in and uh, by the way everyone i've written about they uh, were got sick before vaccines were available. Uh, you know, I get a lot of feedback on these articles. Oh, well, they should have gotten the vaccine. Uh, you know, I, I deliberately pick people to profile uh, in these stories that um, were you know could not get a vaccine when, before, uh, by, when they got long COVID. Yeah, and and, and um, it illustrates so this, the point still. You know, the, how long the difficulty is in obtaining these benefits, even. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so this woman and. Uh, Pennsylvania, she was making over $100,000 a year as a uh, uh, home care nursing supervisor. So, you know, dispatching nurses out to clients in their homes who, you know, need help. Uh, And it's a pretty complex job. Uh, She had a number of nurses that she had to, you know, send out all the time, troubleshooting, you know, helping manage meds and do all these different things. Uh, Very, you know, pretty high impact environment. Um, Juggling a lot of things, multitasking, sending out emails, making calls, you know, arranging schedules, keeping track of a number of employees, uh, you know, doing performance reviews. I mean, you know, an array of, you know, fairly difficult tasks. Uh, Thanksgiving 2020, uh, her whole family gets COVID. Her dad dies. Uh, her mother gets long COVID. She gets long COVID. And um, she has remained sick the whole time. So she, you know, her unemployment ran out. Uh, actually, she she didn't qualify for unemployment because she was uh, uh, too sick to work. Uh, so her uh, extended sick leave ran out and she um, had to quit her job. And uh, this past year, she was applied for uh, Social Security uh, disability. And after exhaustive medical documentation uh, was denied, she actually does have a lawyer working with her to help her. Um, and a lot of people do that because they know they're going to get denied. And now she has to mount an appeal. And so, you know, not only is she exhausted and, and stressed out and can't, you know, can barely walk, you know, 50 feet, uh, you know, she's doing this bureaucratic battle. Um, so it's a very difficult situation. Yeah. And so other people who, if you do have a lawyer, so some lawyers uh, I talk to have, they know how to, what to help the doctors decide, you know, the doctors need to figure out how this is going to relate to your inability to work and document that very, very carefully. Uh, a lot of doctors are unfamiliar with long COVID. They're also unfamiliar with disability applications. So, uh, you know, depending on what doctor you get, where you are, if you're not in a big urban center with a COVID clinic, a long COVID clinic, you know, in rural areas, they don't have long COVID clinics. Uh, you're not going to find doctors who are even familiar with this. Right. Yeah, and in the absence of those tests that will help bear out those diagnoses right there, you know, it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to obtain any of these benefits. So, yeah, just a, an interesting side look at what happens for these people with long COVID and then the struggle just to just get any type of payments back for work that they were losing. Christopher Rowland, Business of Health reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod, both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.